This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. You probably already shop at Amazon. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark my special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Thank you so much. Good evening. It's an honor to be before you tonight, and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to speak with you. Um, I say this is an honor not to flatter you or not because I'm uh, in a different place than where, I from, where I'm from. I say this is an honor because I know that I stand before the future leaders of the world. I know that I stand before people that possess tremendous power to alter the society in which they live. Whether you are aware of that or not, I know this is true of you because it is true of all of us. I know that power exists in our DNA. And if you remember nothing else that I say tonight... I want you to remember this. My mission is singular. It doesn't matter if I'm in the Bahamas. doesn't matter if I'm in America. doesn't matter if I'm speaking before an audience of black people or white people. I only have one aim and one agenda in my life, and that is to convince as many people as possible that they have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative forces in their own lives. Most of us live our lives feeling fundamentally disempowered. We feel like we're constantly being pushed around, pulled around, by external forces, external conditions, and for the most part, we don't have a choice. Our main relationship to power is one where we try to identify people who have it, and then we try to get them to use that power on our behalf. But the notion that power is something that exists within ourselves often sounds like some sort of fairy tale idea, some sort of mystical idea, something that's not grounded in science, rationalism, or empiricism. Well, I disagree with that. I think power is rational, and I think you have it. And I think the greatest lie, the greatest myth that needs to be broken down of our times is that we are just weak little lackeys, weak little victims of circumstance, and we don't really have any options for changing our world other than hoping that something magical happens to us or just hoping that someone who has power will shine down grace upon us and use that power for our benefit. Uh, one of my favorite songs is a song by the jazz musician Kurt Elling. He's a vocalist from Chicago. And he has a song called Finding Neverland. And in that song, he says the following. He says, my friends, every day we go to our everyday jobs. Then we return to our everyday homes. We sit in the everyday chair and we drink from the everyday cup. But we never allow ourselves to go into the extraordinary places in our hearts and our minds. I ask you, my friends, how do you think a book is written? How do you think a song is born? How do you think a picture is painted? How do you think a race is won? How do you think the world gets started? If a little daydreaming is dangerous, the cure for it is not to dream less, but to dream more, to dream all the time. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we change the world by living in a fantasy land, by just imagining that things are different? No, what that means is that we change the world by embracing a radical notion of what is possible. 
We change the world by adopting paradigms and perspectives that are different from what is sold to us by mainstream media. We change the world by turning off the television set for just one second and thinking for ourselves about how reality works, thinking for ourselves about what we're capable of, thinking for ourselves about what the options are. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. The title of this talk is Entrepreneurship as a Theory of Social Change. And I gave it that title because when most people think about changing the world, they generally give themselves two options. That's get involved in politics or that's get involved with some form of philanthropy. But the notion that we can change the world by pursuing our dreams, following our self-interest, engaging in free enterprise, creating wealth, well, that almost seems blasphemous. That seems like heresy. Well, that is precisely what I believe is true. And I believe that entrepreneurship is not only a way to change the world, but I believe it is the way to change the world that is superior to all other ways. I believe that in every instance, when you compare politics with entrepreneurship, the options that exist before us today, the things that improve the quality of our lives, the things that allow us to live free, are the product of innovation and creativity. And if you dedicate your life to living a life of creativity and innovation, you can change the world with or without the permission of politicians, regardless of who is in office. Because in every generation, human beings have risen up, ordinary people, just like you and I, and through creativity have overcome incredible odds and have done the things that people said could not be done during their time. So I'd like to begin with a story by an author named Gaganji. She has a book called uh, The Diamond in Your Pocket, and she tells the story of a diamond thief. Uh, this diamond thief, he observes an elderly man go into a jeweler, and he watches him, and he sees the man buy jewelry, but he doesn't see where he puts it on his body. And so as the man walks out, the diamond thief employs a strategy that he uses to figure out where the jewelry is on the body of his future victim, he brushes up against him and he knows that by instinct when someone is bumped and they have something valuable on them, they tend to grasp for the area where the goods are to kind of protect it. And so he sees the guy sort of grasp his left pocket and the diamond thief says, there it is. I know where it is. I will follow him. So he follows the man for a while and when he gets close enough, he tries to pickpocket him. But alas, the diamond isn't in his pocket. So he follows him a little bit longer, and he tries the other pocket. Maybe I overlooked something. Maybe I made a mistake. And he tries to pick that pocket, and the diamond isn't there. So exhausted, he decides he's going to give up. But before he does, he stops the man, and he says, Look, I'm done with you. I'm not going to take your diamond. I know that you know what I'm doing. But please, for my peace of mind, I have never been able to you know, not steal a diamond from someone. Where did you hide it? And the man said, the last place you thought to look. And he reached into the pocket of the diamond thief and he pulled out the diamond. The diamond was in the last place that he thought to look. I believe that too is true of social change. The power to create a freer society, the power to make a different, the world different, it's in the last place you thought to look. It's in you. In America right now, you've got half the country is in bliss over the election of Donald Trump. You've got half the country is in despair over that same election. And both sides are alike. 
One side happens to be happy now. The other side happens to be miserable right now. But they're the same. Give it four years and the sides will change. Or give it eight years and the sides will change. I tell everyone at some point in your lifetime, you're going to get a politician that you don't like. There's no way around that. And if that's where your power is, you're hopeless. You should be in despair. You should be depressed. You should be discouraged. You should be sad because there's nothing you can do to control the fact that at some point in your lifetime, people that are evil according to your definition of evil will ascend to positions of power. However, when you opt out of that paradigm by choosing to think for yourself, by choosing to entertain new possibilities, the last place that everybody else thought to look is the first place that you think to look and you get to live your life on the leading edge of creativity. Much of my thinking on this topic is influenced by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, uh, philosophers of language and cognitive scientists. There's a book called um, Metaphors We Live By. I encourage you all to check it out or even just YouTube uh, George Lakoff and check out some of the talks that he's giving, given. Um, but one of the premises of this book is that this distinction that we make between metaphorical language and literal language, that that distinction is itself a kind of metaphor. That we not only speak in metaphors, but we actually think in metaphors. That the metaphors we use when we talk, they aren't just a matter of poetry, they aren't just a matter of wordplay, but the metaphors we use, they actually influence the way we think. They actually influence the way we perceive and process the data of experience. That our metaphors are not neutral. That if you change your metaphors, you actually change the way that you frame your experience. So an example of how this might work is, first let's think about how we talk about things like time. Um, we say things like, um, be careful how you spend your time. Don't waste your time. Invest your time wisely. Now, we know that time literally can't be spent. Time literally can't be wasted. Whether you define time scientifically or spiritually, time simply isn't that sort of thing. But this is what Lakoff calls the time as currency metaphor. It's where we take something that is very nebulous, abstract, difficult to understand, and we characterize it in terms of something that's very concrete, something that's very measurable, something that we interact with every day, and by thinking about time in terms of money, we're able to understand it a little bit better and manage our experience a little bit better. Or how about life? We often invoke, when talking about life, the life as journey metaphor. Life is a journey from one place to another. So when people give advice, like they say, don't just focus on the destination, learn to enjoy the journey, right? That's part of the life as journey metaphor. But that's not the only metaphor that you could use. You could also use the life as a battle metaphor, right? And both metaphors can work for different circumstances and conditions. Neither one of, is, neither one of them is the right way to speak because when we speak about life as a battle or as a metaphor, we're not speaking literally. We're speaking figuratively. So now let's give an example of how this comes about. So when we speak of prices, for instance, we speak of prices going up or going down. Prices rise and fall. But literally, this isn't true. What does that even mean? Literally, prices increase and decrease, but why should we speak of them as rising and falling? 
you could just as well speak of prices as moving to the left or moving to the right. Think about a, a, a traditional number line where you have the numbers increase as you go to the right, the numbers decrease as you go to the left. We could say when prices decrease, we can say the prices move to the left. When the prices increase, we can say the prices move to the right. Right? So we're not speaking literally when we say they rise and they fall. Well, one of the things that Lakoff talks about, this concept of embodied cognition, he says, when we're children, this is an example of how this thinking forms. When we're children, maybe we see a glass of water and someone pour, and we see an empty glass rather, and someone pours water into the glass and the glass begins to fill. And we notice two things. We notice one, that there's verticality, right? The water moves up. And we also notice that the amount of water in the glass increases. And so there's an association that we make between verticality and the increase in the amount of something. And so we think about increase in terms of things going up. And we think about decrease in terms of things going down. But these are metaphors. These are not literal descriptions. Now, whenever I explain this, some people immediately get defensive and they say, well, there's nothing wrong with me speaking that way. Please understand, this is not a criticism of how we use words. There's nothing wrong with using any of these metaphors. But like Lakoff says, every metaphor not only reveals, but it also conceals. In other words, when you use a metaphor, it allows you to understand things in interesting ways, but it also blinds you from seeing other aspects to that thing. So if you go around thinking of life in terms of the life is a battle metaphor, you'll experience everything as if it's a battle. If you go around thinking of time as money, there might be interesting aspects to the nature of time that you are blinded from seeing because of the limitations inherent in that metaphor. An example of this is the argument as war metaphor. Consider for a moment the language that we use when we talk about arguments, debates, disagreements. We use the language of warfare. We use the same terms that military uses. So for instance, we say things like, she knocked down all of my arguments, right? We say things like, he defeated my position. Defeat, knock down. He stood his ground in the debate. I refuted all of his points one by one. Why are you attacking my position so harshly? I defended my arguments against all of her objections. Defense, attack, standing ground. Now arguments are not literally wars. Arguments by definitions are just statements in which some of the statements purport to establish evidence for other statements. But yet we use this language of warfare when we talk about arguments. And Lakoff says this isn't just a matter of linguistic preferences. Speaking in this way actually affects the way we think about arguments and they affect the way we experience arguments. So now think for a moment about your actual experience of arguments. Think about the last time you had a disagreement with someone. Think about the last time you went, you had a debate with someone, you argued with them. Chances are it felt like a battle, right? It felt tense. It felt like you were at war with them. It felt like a fight. And this is why many people avoid arguments. They don't want to do it because the way we think culturally about arguments is captured entirely by this metaphor of argument as war. Well, Lakoff says we can back off that metaphor a little bit. We can think of new ways 
of characterizing arguments. We can think of arguments as a kind of dance. And what sort of experiences begin to open up to us when we operate under a metaphor like the argument as choreography metaphor, as opposed to the argument as war metaphor? When you want to change your experience, you have to invoke new metaphors. This is something that we already do unconsciously, but it's something that we can do deliberately. It's something that we can change of our own free will. I think the key to opting out of the existing paradigm of depending entirely on politics and philanthropy to produce social change requires us to entertain new metaphors. In, in, in America, we, we use the metaphor of warfare, freedom. Freedom is a fight. Freedom is something that we fight for. And if you look at the history of the country, it makes sense, right? It has been necessary to engage in military battle in order to gain freedom. And there's a lot to be understood by thinking of it in that way. Freedom is something that you fight for. But one of the limitations of thinking about freedom in terms of the freedom is a fight metaphor is that our focus is oriented around opposition and trying to negotiate with opposition or trying to defeat opposition. And while that's useful in some contexts, it's very limited. It's like the same goals. If, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to treat everything like a nail. If the only metaphor you have for understanding how we make the world free is that of a battle or a fight, you tend to treat everyone as if they are either an enemy or an ally, and you become trapped in these false dichotomies that limit the possibilities of your thinking. And you live in a narrow little world when there are options and opportunities all around you that you can't see because you're blinded by these limiting metaphors. So the metaphor that I would like to invite you to think about freedom under is the metaphor of freedom as art. That freedom is something that you introduce to the world, it is something that you cultivate through creativity and innovation. That this is how you make the world a freer place, by following the path of the artist, following the path of the entrepreneur. How many of you have heard of iPencil? Anybody heard of iPencil? All right, so we need to change that quickly. Uh, so you've definitely heard of it. You've heard of iPencil. I, I would write this down. Um, iPencil is a classic text. You don't have to spend a dime on it. You can go online, Google iPencil PDF, and you can read the ebook for free. Tell you what, I'll make it even easier. You can go find a video on YouTube that's under 12 minutes long. Just Google iPencil. There's an animation film, an animation short film, that's based on the book. But iPencil is one of the greatest illustrations of a core economic concept known as spontaneous order. And spontaneous order is the kind of order that emerges in a society not as, not as a result of central planning, but as a result of individuals in different parts of the world, each pursuing their own self-interest. The basic idea by pencil was that nobody knows how to make a pencil. Now, what is meant by that isn't there isn't anyone who knows the elements necessary for making a pencil or that we don't know how to manufacture a pencil, but rather we didn't get a society where pencils exist because of some politician or some centralized institution that said, hey, you know what? It would be a good idea if we had this thing called pencils. And then they passed a law saying that pencils are necessary and people meet, need to contribute to the process of making them. That's not how we got pencils. 
We actually got pencils through spontaneous order. Pencils are an example of spontaneous order. You have different people pursuing their own self-interest, not because they're trying to change the world, not because they're trying to make pencils, but because they're trying to get what they want out of life. And somehow, some way, what Adam Smith calls the invisible hand, these things come together in such a way to produce what economists call a positive externality, which is an unintended benefit of various kinds of action. I like to use this metaphor of pencil for freedom, that you create a freer world in the same way that you create a pencil, not through the power of politics, not by arguing everyone into thinking the way that you do, but by following your self-interest and encouraging others to do the same. The beautiful thing about creativity is that it's not a democracy, nor is it a tyranny. Creativity doesn't require a majority vote. It doesn't require you to philosophically win people over. How many of you have ever seen the movie uh, The Matrix? There's a scene in that movie, I believe in the sequel, where Morpheus and another character are having a disagreement about some matter of strategy. And one of the characters says to Morpheus, he gets angry and he says, darn it, Morpheus, not everybody believes in fairies and oracles. And then Morpheus says to him, fortunately, my beliefs do not require them to. What a position of power. When was the last time you reacted that way in an argument? When was the last time you stood in the presence of someone who disagreed with you and they said, I think you're wrong. I don't think that's true at all. I think you're irrational. And you reacted with the confidence of a person who said, my happiness, my fulfillment, and my power does not in any way depend upon you accepting my position as legitimate. Because my creativity is not a democracy. My creativity is not permission-based. Is that, was that your reaction? Or was it something like, whoa, who are you to say? Whoa, 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 whoa. We get defensive, right? We get angry. We are psychologically dependent upon other people agreeing with us because we've been programmed, we've been conditioned into thinking about reality in such a way that says, you are powerless unless you can get the majority of people to agree with you, which is why it would make sense. We only turn to politics when it's time to get something done. All right, so let's talk about this in terms of, of actual examples and, and, and how this might play out approaching the process of creating a freer world through creativity and innovation, through entrepreneurship. One of the first things that stop us from entertaining ideas like this is the demonization of profit. So I wanna take a couple of moments and talk about this for a little bit. One of the reasons we tend to go towards politics or we go towards philanthropy and we don't consider entrepreneurship when we're thinking about making the world a better place is because we kinda of have this idea that, well, if there's something in it for you, if you're making money or if you're getting personal gain from this, then it can't possibly be good, you know, because in politics and in philanthropy, it's just about helping other people. And you know, making money is all about capitalizing on opportunity and exploiting people. All right, first of all, I wanna dispel a popular myth about money. You can't make money off of other people's problems. There's no one in this world that makes money off of people's problems. If you think I'm wrong, look at your life. How many people do you know that have problems? And how wealthy has that made you? 
The mere existence of problems can't make anyone wealthy. There's no one on this planet who can make money off another person's problems. You only make money from solutions. You make money by turning problems into opportunities and innovating solutions that other people are not willing to provide or that other people are not capable of providing or that other people just aren't creative enough to think about. So you don't make money off problems. You make money off solutions. It's not about exploitation. It's about the transformation of problem into opportunity. The second thing is money, contrary to popular belief, does not bring corruption. I know that's the line that we're sold. I know that's what we're conditioned to think. I know that's what the authority figures want us to believe. I know we get in trouble for doubting what the hierarchy and the masters and the organizers of the Hunger Games tell us we're supposed to think. But money, far from being a corruptive force, is actually a purifying force. How is that? How does that work? How many of you have ever gone to restaurants to eat or you've ever gone to a supermarket, a grocery store to buy things? It's not a trick question. I prom- I'm not that kind of dude. I'm not, I'm not here to set you up or anything like that. If I ask a question, it's totally agenda free. All right. So my question to you is, how crazy is that? Seriously, how crazy is that? I mean, you are exercising blind faith in total strangers. Do you know that if you go to a restaurant to eat food or you go to a supermarket to buy groceries, that some crazy whack job who works for that place could poison your food? Has that never occurred? Right? And yet we have this astounding faith, right? We sit in the restaurant and we just sort of assume that won't happen, right? That won't happen. If it does happen, you know, the probabilities are pretty low. Where does that confidence come from? Why do we have such faith? I reckon that we know something that we don't know we know. We know something that we're often not conscious of. People often say to me, I never trust anybody that's trying to make money off me. And I always say, I only trust people that are trying to make money off me. Why is that? Because that means you have something to lose if I don't get what I want. If you're trying to make money off me, that's great because that means you want something. I know exactly what you want. And the only way you can get what you want is by making me happy. Great. You're accountable. You're accountable. You've got stake in the game. You're not just doing what you think is cool from some detached state. Your self-interests are at play here and they're tied to my self-interest. I love it that when I go to a restaurant, they're trying to make as much money as possible from me because that means they're going to hustle and bustle and do whatever they have to do to sell me on the idea that they can make me happier than those people over there. They know that there are other people in the world who are also greedy, who want my money, and they're afraid that those people are going to get my money. And so they work even harder to make me happy, not because they love me, not because they think I'm a great guy, but because of the same thing that motivates all human behavior, the consideration of one's own self-interest. Even when people don't care about you, they care about themselves. People care about their own experience of pleasure and pain, their own experience of fulfillment, and that plays a role in everything that we do. Money actually purifies things. I I would challenge you all to do the following exercise. Go to a a university's music department and just hang out with the people that study music for a little bit and listen to the way they talk about people 
who haven't studied music, who don't know music, or just go hang around people like in the choirs or people that are musicians, people that know their stuff, and listen to the way they talk about people that don't know their stuff with music, they can speak quite disparagingly about the aesthetic taste of people like us. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Or, or go to a film department at a university and listen to the filmmakers, the people that you know, know cinematography and they know good writing. Listen to the way they talk about the rest of us who don't know what they know. They don't do it all the time, but they can be quite disparaging of our aesthetic taste. Now, imagine a world in which those people who think they understand what good art is were free to create art and totally ignore us. Art would be horrible. I'll give you an example of how this looks. Let's say I'm a stand-up comedian and I walk in here and I tell a little joke. I'm so unfunny that I won't even give an example. But I tell a joke and everybody looks at me and none of you laugh. How, what do you think would happen if I said something like, well, you guys don't know what funny is. I studied comedy in college. I've been a comedian for 40 years. I know what comedy is. I studied under Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld. Sorry, you guys are wrong. I get funny. Apparently, you don't. Hey, that's great. I got to laugh. Maybe I should make that a bit and do a little stand-up routine. But would it be possible for me to survive with that kind of attitude? Could I make a career out of a stand as a stand-up comedian? Well, see, if you didn't matter, if money didn't play a role in this, if money and profit didn't play a role in this, I actually could get away with that because you wouldn't mean anything to me. I get to be free to think in terms of my own ideas of expertise. I get to be free to be an elitist and keep on looking down on you. But we have a problem, and that is I want to make a living as a comedian. And I can't pay my bills as a comedian. I can't do this thing full time unless I can pack the seats unless I can fill auditoriums and get people in here who want to hear my jokes and who find me funny and who will leave and go tell their friends, man, you got to go see this cat. He's hilarious. I need that result. And the only way I can get that result and improve my ability to keep on getting it is I got to pay attention to you. I got to pay attention to your feedback and I got to take it seriously because self-interest is at play. I've got stake in the game. What I'm trying to get is connected to what you're trying to get. One of the reasons we have such beautiful art today, one of the reasons we have such an amazing array of literature, a wide range of films, we have such great music, is because of free enterprise. These things were not brought to us by the power of legislative force. I mean, what, what do you guys use when you listen to music? What, what, what apps do you use? Where do you, where do you listen to music from? Pandora, Last.fm, what do you... What do you Spotify. I know what Spotify is, but if I said Spotify, I'd take away your answer. All right, you use things like Spotify. Did that come into play through legislative force? Did a politician say, I think it would be a great idea if we had apps where people could listen to music, people could download music, people could stream it? No. That came from this dirty little thing that we've all been taught to look at as bad. That came from money and the pursuit of it that came from the pursuit of self-interest. Now, I didn't intend to really get into this, but you know, um, I, I was told by Rick earlier that we have a, a pretty large Christian contingent in the audience, so let me just say one quick thing that has been a major stumbling block, even in Christendom, 
when it comes to thinking clearly about this topic of money. It's the often misquoted Bible verse that says money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. And we need to stop misrepresenting the scripture, right? Because the Bible also has something to say about adding things to the Bible that aren't in the Bible, right? The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, they could have said money is the root of all evil, but those weren't the words chosen. So if we deal with the words that are actually there, we have to deal with the words that are actually there. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, the notion that money is the root of all evil is absolutely absurd. There are clearly things that people do that have nothing to do with money. You know, a person randomly walks up to another person and blows their brains out. What does that have to do with money? But that's evil. Clearly money isn't the root of all evil. That's why it doesn't say such a ridiculous thing. But the love of money, what is being talked about there? Well, it's not talking about the yen. It's not talking about Bitcoin. It's not talking about the US dollar. It's talking about something else. This idea of the love of money is a preoccupation with the realm of the visible. It is when you prioritize things that are seen over things that are not seen. Now that makes sense because that truly is the root of all evil. You find me one example of evil being done in the world and I will show you an example of someone who prioritizes that which is seen over that which is unseen. I will show you an example of someone who does that very thing. That is the root of all evil. But check it out, same Bible. Jesus says, what does it profit a man, peep that word, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Think about that question for a minute. He's actually criticizing this as an unprofitable transaction. He's actually assuming here that you ought to think about what you get out of the deal anytime you make a choice. And he's criticizing this decision precisely because it's not profitable. He's saying, take a look. You gain the whole world, something that's temporal, physical, something that fades away, something that can't endure forever. And in exchange for that, you're giving up something that is eternal, something that is valuable, something that will outlast the material things. That's an unprofitable transaction. So these sorts of misconceptions have contributed to the unfair demonization of these things. Not only is profit and the profit motive not a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. It purifies free enterprise by holding us accountable. In fact, it forces us to be precise and to be honest about something that we often fool ourselves about, about something that we're often unaware of, which is no matter what we do, there is some consideration going on of what we are getting or trying to get out of the deal. All right, so we've talked about this demonization of profit and we've dismantled that myth. Now let's talk about how free markets can outperform, outperform politics. I think in every instance where we have the opportunity to compare the two, free markets do a superior job than politics at solving problems. I'll just use one problem, one that makes everybody nervous and everybody tense when it gets talked about, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about racism, okay? Now, in politics, this is a really big deal, right? In politics, we debate, we go back and forth, we go back and forth, hardly ever anything gets solved. You take, for instance, 
a person claims to have um, experienced racial injustice. You know, in America, we're still having debates about the mere existence of racism, right? You got half the country that says racism doesn't even exist. And you got the other half saying it does exist and it is a problem. And then you got other people saying, actually, you're hallucinating. Actually, you're making something an issue when it is not an issue. Now, I just I want you to just think about this for a moment, how this would work out if we're not dealing with politics in the free market. Imagine if I'm a, a restaurant owner and someone comes into my establishment and they order a burger and they complain and they say, um, hey, man, I don't like this burger. This isn't a good burger. Uh, and imagine if I said, well, I'm the chef. Um, you don't know what it's like to do my job. Um, you need to give me a hug for even criticizing me like that. Um, and you need to learn what good food tastes like. <laughs> now, I actually would have the right to do that. And there are people who would defend me and say, hey, TK has that right. And they would be right. I have the right to do that. But how effective am, am, how effective am I going to be as a businessman? That's one customer loss, right? That's one customer loss. And here's the beauty of markets. When I leave customers unsatisfied, it incentivizes competition to enter into the marketplace and steal business away from me by doing a better job than I can do at satisfying my customers. This is why we have so much variety. We have so much variety. Like the reason we have Burger King and Wendy's and Chipotle and Kidoba is because we started off with, with one and they couldn't satisfy everybody. They had people that complained. They had people that said, I, I want less of this. I want more of that. I don't like this. And the existing establishment said, well, we don't care enough. We don't care enough about that. And so competition said, oh, great. Awesome. This is an opportunity for us to create wealth by satisfying the people that they are not willing to satisfy. Now, what's interesting about the world of entrepreneurship is something that I learned by being married in May. I'll be celebrating my six-year anniversary. And one of the most important lessons I learned from marriage is that the perception of a problem is a problem. I think if you just take that right there, which is not even what I intended to talk about, man, that is one principle that can really make your life easier. The perception of a problem is a problem. So let's say one day my wife comes home from work and I say, how was your day? And let's say she says something like, uh, it was rough today. And I said, why was it rough? And she says, well, so-and-so said such and such, and so-and-so did such and such. Imagine if I said, oh, <laughs> that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. I wouldn't react like that. You're you making a problem out of something that ain't even a problem. <laughs> right? Well, I can assure you this. We will not be moving in the direction of conflict resolution. Right? Right? The smart man in this moment recognizes that the perception of a problem is a problem. That means instead of debating with her about the existence of the problem, we accept as fundamental to her experience that she is experiencing reality in a way that is resulted, resulting in her having problems. And I can either get involved or not. And if I get involved in the solution, I create a win-win. If I consistently refuse to get involved in that solution, will I incentivize competition to enter the market and do a better job of satisfying? You know, so, <laughs> right? Am I right, though? Am I right? Okay, so 
it makes no sense, and this is why we don't have these conversations in the free market. You know, it makes no sense to tell your customers you're hallucinating or you're, in fact, entrepreneurs don't even care. It doesn't matter. As an entrepreneur, all I care is that you're unhappy. And if you tell me that you're unhappy and you have a problem, doesn't even matter to me if your problem is real. Doesn't even matter to me if I see it as a problem. All I know is that if I can be the one to come up with some kind of solution, and if I can satisfy you better than existing systems, existing opportunities, then I've not only created wealth for you, but I've created wealth for me. This is what explains this question that for some reason it remains a mystery to some people. Um, I get this question a lot. I'm speaking before a different kind of demographic today, but I get this question a lot. Has anybody ever asked you this before? Um, why is there a BET? You know, why can't there be a WET? Anybody ever heard that question before? Okay, now this is actually really simple. This is an extremely easy question to answer. It has nothing to do with politics at all. It just has to do with understanding the basic reality of markets and how free enterprise works. Anytime a group of people are unsatisfied with the opportunities that are available to them, that means they have a problem. And the perception of a problem is a problem. And if someone has a problem, that means there is much wealth to be created by anyone that can figure out a way to make that problem go away. What, we, what did we talk about earlier? You don't make money off of people's problems. If that were true, we'd all be rich because we all know people that have problems and it hasn't put a dime in your pocket or mine, but you make money off of solutions by innovating possibilities for these people. So let's take BET. It's really simple. The majority of people in the Western world happen to be white, at least in, in terms of you know, what we see represented in, on television. So if you watch an action movie, if you watch a romantic comedy, chances are you're going to see white people in that lead. Okay, so if a person of color watches these programs, some of those people say, I don't care. But some of those people say, hey man, you know, I would like to see a, you know, somebody almost get killed for a black woman. Or somebody might say, hey, I would like to see a black couple fall in love. Or somebody might say, hey, I would like to see a black action hero or what have you. And the existing networks can accommodate that and say, oh, okay, that's, that's what you guys want. We'll give it to you. And if they don't, then someone else says, hey, I got an opportunity here. I got a chance to make something happen. And then innovation emerges. And then people are happy. Now, notice, notice that we didn't have to take a vote. Going back to the point about creativity is not a democracy. We didn't have to take a vote and get all the black people and the white people to agree that BET is a good idea. Do you think BET would have ever happened? Think about the people who ask this question and who still don't get it. Think about the people who just can't wrap their minds around why there has to be, be a BET. Do you think you can get a BET through democracy? Do you, you think you can get a BET through legislative force? It doesn't happen. Markets, easy. You take the Oscars for the second year in a row, you didn't have any black nominees, and then straight out of Compton had the screenwriters who were white nominated you know, for you know, screenwriting awards and people got upset and there was a hashtag that exploded on Twitter that said, you know, Oscar so white, right? 
And the usual stuff happened, as, as we should expect when people bring up race. A bunch of people start disagreeing, the usual accusations, you're hallucinating, you're making things up, this is not a problem. But guess what? We're not dealing with politics here. In the market, the academy knows something. The academy knows that the black dollar matters. The academy knows that even if the powers that be are convinced that you are hallucinating and making things up, that they gotta keep you somewhat happy in order to get you to come to the movies because their self-interest is tied to your self-interest. And within a couple of months, an official statement was released with all of the, you know, the rhetoric about how they're going to introduce the following changes in the board and make sure that minorities are represented aboard in the board and so forth. This is how markets work. Every time free markets are given the opportunity to address problems of inadequacy, problems of inefficiency, problems of disenfranchisement, the markets succeed. They don't work with perfect efficiency. They take time, they take experimentation, but markets prevail. Politics, on the other hand, well, you better hope you get your guy in office, right? Enjoy the next four years, enjoy the next eight years, and then if you get that person in office, think about all the people who were so happy in America when President Obama was elected, tears coming out of people's eyes, everybody excited, this is the golden age. Well, that's done now, right? Those same people are crying about Donald Trump being elected, and I'm not making fun of those people, but what I'm saying is, guys, this is a powerless way to live, to base our sense of power, to base our, our hope, our ability to hope in a freer world on getting the right person in office offers us very little opportunity. You know, and when you have such a large body of evidence saying the free market outperforms the government when it solves problems, why not take some of that energy and invest it in the direction of encouraging people to approach every aspect of their lives with the entrepreneurial mind? Now, that doesn't mean that everybody can be a startup founder, that everybody can be the next Mark Zuckerberg. That's a stereotype. Being an entrepreneur, you know, you can be entrepreneurial. You don't necessarily have to be an entrepreneur to be entrepreneurial. And being entrepreneurial means that you just approach everything that you do, professional and personal life, with a sense of artistry, with a sense of autonomy, daring to see, daring to believe, and daring to investigate and explore and experiment with possibilities that others overlook or are too afraid to dabble in. That's how you do it. That's how you change the world. That's how you make good things happen. If you look at the changes that have taken place in history, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I, I don't like to spend too much of my energy talking about politicians because I honestly believe that the more we treat them as if they are the primary topic worth talking about, uh, the more they win, the more we are fundamentally disempowered. We need to shift paradigms and treat us and our power as individuals as the main topic of every conversation. But I'll take a break for a moment and talk about politicians for a moment. There is one thing that I think politicians are great at, absolutely amazing at, and that is centering themselves in the middle of revolutions that they themselves did not initiate and finding a way to appear as if they were the ones who started it all. They're actually, they're actually very amazing at that. But if you look at the evolution of society, you look at every time that problems have been overcome, that things have gotten better, it never started with a politician. 
And I'll, I'll, I'll let you challenge me in Q&A if you think there's a single counterexample of something good or of some revolution that began with a politician. But you know what politicians do? They come along and they ride the waves of what has been demonstrated to be politically profitable to ride, right? They, they wait to see what, what you're gonna do. They wait to see what your reaction is, which is why when they asked Hillary Clinton about Black Lives Matter, she said, all lives matter. And then when the crowd booed, she cleaned that up real fast, <laughs> right? Right? So they, they watch you, you know, they, they asked her, you know, Hillary, Mac, or PC? And she says, um, um, she says, PC. And then the crowd for that audience was a group of college students booed. And, and, and she went into, oh, but my, my, my daughter, my daughter uses a Mac. You know, that, that, that's the political mentality. I'm not picking on Hillary. It's what they all do. It's what they all do. They watch you first, gauge you first. They talk as if the power begins with them, but the power always begins with you. Every revolution has been the result of ordinary people taking the idea of themselves as creative forces seriously and not treating their creativity as if the expression of it depended on a majority vote. In fact, whenever innovation happens, it's usually just the opposite. Revolutions are never the product of getting the majority of people to buy into a good idea. Revolutions are always the product of a minority of people being willing to endure the hardship of everyone thinking they're crazy and sticking with a creative idea and altering the way people see the world. You know, there's only so much you can achieve by arguing with people. There's only so much you can achieve by trying to influence the direction in which another person votes or there's only so much you can do to get somebody through argumentation to accept your experiences as valid. But one thing that you can always do even if you can't change the way people see the world, you can change the world that people see. Imagine a man walking around in a dark room and that man bumps into furniture and you yell at him and you say, hey man, be careful. And then he walks around and he bumps into something else and you say, dude, chill, you're gonna break something. And he walks again and he bumps into something, knocks over a lamp, you say, hey, listen, how many times do I gotta tell you to be careful? You can, you can keep going on and on with the same result. But then if you just simply flick the light switch and he can see clearly, his behavior automatically changes in response to the change you wrought in his environment. You can argue with people to try to see reality how you want them to see it. You can use the power of political legislation to try to force people to behave the way you want them to behave or you can adopt the non-permission-based approach to creativity and you can act on your ideas and follow your own self-interest and you can change the incentive structure that governs how people behave. You don't change the way they see, you change the world that they see and they respond differently to that world. Do you think, uh, how many of you know about Uber and Lyft? Okay. Do you think people use Uber and Lyft because someone argued them into that? Do you think people use, use Uber and Lyft because a politician said this is how we're gonna do things? No, these were entrepreneurs who introduced these ideas and everybody at first said, I don't know about that. Is that even safe? That sounds weird, that sounds odd. Think about the first time you explained to your parents or grandparents Facebook or Twitter or tried to explain, right? I don't get it, what's that about? You know, that's what everybody, everybody kind of said, right? But people didn't adopt those things because they were argued into them or they were forced to do it by law. 
It's because a small remnant persisted along the creative path until they created a world where it actually became extremely difficult for you to not use Facebook. We live in a world now where it's actually difficult to not be on Facebook. Isn't that crazy? It's difficult to not use Uber. It's harder than it was 10 years ago. I had a much easier time using a cab to get where I wanna go now. Now, it's much more difficult for me to do that. 10 years ago, I had a much easier time saying I'm not gonna be involved on the internet or social media. Now, it's harder. It's harder for me to exist in this world without that. So even though nobody changed the way I see the world, they changed the world that I see. And even though I'm the same old me, I react in response in accordance with the philosophy of freedom because the philosophy of freedom was not put out there through force or philosophical argumentation. The philosophy of freedom was embodied and expressed by people who had the guts to be strange, to be weird, to be daring, to be different, to be bold, to be willing to fail, and to take risk and to introduce possibilities to the world when everyone else was content to complain and be upset. I wanna challenge you with one, one final thought. I wrote a blog post just the other day where I, where I said, never confuse emotion with ethics. We live in a world where the emotional experience of outrage is often equated with virtue. People genuinely believe that they are persons of integrity simply because they get mad at the right things. And I wanna challenge that and say, your integrity is not determined by what you feel. There are people in this world that get sad and angry and injustice. There are people in this world that get sad and angry and upset about problems, but they don't make any alterations in their lifestyle to do anything that can contribute to the overcoming of those problems, to the minimizing of those problems. And then there are people who don't seem to have the reaction you would like them to have. There are people that just, they just don't have that temperament. They don't really stress out. They don't really get upset, or at least they don't show it. And you might look at that person and say, ah, you know, you know, and that person might be doing things to make the world a better place that you don't even know about, but they don't feel the need to advertise it or talk about it. You know, they don't feel the need to share it with you or argue with you about it or prove anything to you. The important thing to understand is that integrity is determined by what you actually do with your ideas and convictions. You can sit back and you can be mad at political systems. You can sit back and you can be angry at all the injustice in the world. You can be as mad about poverty as you wanna be, and none of that counts for integrity until you make the choice to get up, use whatever talents, resources, and gifts that you have to make changes in the world every day. And this notion that you only can change things when it's time to vote for a politician that's BS, and that's an insult to your human dignity. Now, if someone says to me, you know, well, TK, what are you saying? Are you saying that I should not be involved in politics? Are you saying that I should never vote? People love this question because the brain loves false dichotomies, because false dichotomies allow us to dismiss ideas without being challenged by those ideas. So the easiest thing to do when confronted with a challenging paradigm altering idea is to box it into this tiny little position to create a straw man version of that position that allows you to easily dismiss it without having to change your worldview or change your lifestyle. So it's easy to say something like, ah, oh, this, this just means don't ever be involved in politics, but I don't wanna let you off the hook in that way. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however, is that there is no shortage of people in this world who are going to try to influence who you vote for, how you vote. 
If I were to drop dead right now, the world would not miss me if my value were measured in being just another person to tell you how to think about politics. However, what we don't have enough of is we don't have enough people in this world who says you have power beyond politics. You have an ability to innovate and create that can make this world freer and it doesn't matter who is in office. Ultimately, people look to politics because people have problems. And people look to politics because they don't have faith in the options that are around them to take care of those problems. Pay attention to people. People don't want government to be involved in every aspect of their lives. None of you want the government to be involved in telling you what to eat for dinner. None of you want the government to be involved in telling you what shoes to wear. People aren't stupid as much as we think they are. People don't want politics to be involved in everything. It's only when there are problems and people see a limited amount of options for dealing with those problems. When you can create options, you actually push back the boundaries. You push back that need to instinctively latch on to politics and depend on politics. Look at how the communication game has changed. Once upon a time, you know, uh, we depended on government postal service. Now we have email, we've got Skype, we've got FedEx, we've got so many options. Government postal, it's kind of like in the background. It's one of these, you know, kind of little irrelevant things that, you know, it still goes on, but, you know, nobody really cares. You know, nobody's really dependent upon them. But we didn't get that way through arguing. And we didn't get their way through legislative force. You know, there are certain things that you just won't get through those, through those means. So um, I just want to close, and I'll, I'll spend a little time um, answering questions if I have time. I just want to close by saying that... You know, anyone who tells you during any election cycle that this is your one time to change the world, they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. You have an opportunity to change the world 365 days a year. And if you think that's naive, if you think that's silly, if you think that's a fairy tale belief, go ahead and laugh at me. But my question to you is, who's laughing at you as you laugh at the idea of your own power? Thank you. How are we doing, Rick? Ten minutes for Q&A. Let's do it. Great. Ten minutes for Q&A. Hold on. Shall I, uh, you'll, you'll call? Yeah, just um, if you have a question, just um, raise your hand. I'll point you out. I don't know if we're running mics or anything like that. While, while, while we've got people coming in and so forth, you might see my T-shirt. It says Praxis. Um, Praxis is a... Um, a program that I have co-founded along with Isaac Morehouse. Many of you present here heard Isaac Morehouse speak. He's a great friend of mine and, and my business partner. And um, one of the things that we, uh, that we talk about a lot is this notion of criticizing by creating. Um, something that is immensely frustrating in the world of education is that there are people that are not being served by existing systems. And we often approach these problems as beggars, you know, hoping that the existing system will, will accommodate this kind of person and that kind of person. But the existing systems are, are quite bureaucratic, very resistant to change, very skeptical of innovation. And we saw a lot of problems in higher education, that much of what people study in higher education is not market-driven. There's this disconnect 
between people who have degrees and who go out into the real world to get jobs, you often find that the things that students have been taught to value aren't the same thing as what business owners who are doing the hiring value. And there's this disconnect. And it's, prim it's primarily because curriculums are dominated by these bureaucratic processes. They're not goal-oriented. They're not project-based. They're not market-driven. And we saw a lot of these problems. And instead of just being angry at the existing system, instead of begging the existing, the existing system to accommodate us, we decided to create our own alternative. And we're still in the process of creating and it's never been easy, and we've taken a lot of flack for it, we've taken a lot of criticism, we've had a lot of people express skepticism, but we've been able to produce a body of evidence that shows there is a better way, there is a different way, and that the existing systems can't satisfy. So this is not just a philosophy that I kind of read about in a self-help book and decided to kind of memorize and spout off to you. You know, this is something that I strive to live every day of my life in all sorts of different ways. Just intervene. As we continue, I'd just like for you to just be seated until this process is completed, please. Any any questions? Seat, lady. I'm sure everyone in the house has an idea to say, that's how we're going to make money. That's how you be able to do it. That's how you However, we all have means of being discouraged and being, of and being like made down or obstacles. We have a word of encouragement to give us to say that and if you have a business idea, or if you have something to make money, just how to go about doing it, or if you are facing obstacles, do it this way or do it that way, or face obstacles this way or that way. Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, I have people ask me a lot, you know, what's the point of being, you know, creative if, if life is so hard? And my answer to that is creativity isn't for the good times. Creativity is precisely for the bad times. You know, uh, the existence of obstacles and problems is not an argument against creativity. It's the entire basis for creativity. If we lived in a world where we could instantaneously manifest our desires or we could just go from point A to point B without encountering any unanticipated obstacles and difficulties, then there would be need for any of us to be creative. But we have to be creative because no matter who we are, where we're from and what we try to do, life is filled with sur uh, surprises. And those surprises require us to improvise. The second thing I'll say is there's a book I encourage you to read by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way. We often look at obstacles as the things that stand between us and what we want. But many of the things that are obstacles are the very things that make our stories interesting. They're the, they're the very things that give us a competitive advantage. But it's a matter of learning how to spin it. It's a matter of stepping back from that obstacle long enough to think clearly, not just from your state of frustration, but asking yourself, how can I cash in on this obstacle? By using it as an opportunity to differentiate myself from everyone else, by using it as an opportunity to position myself as a person that has unique insights because of what I've been through. The third thing I'll say about obstacles is that, look, I don't think the ultimate goal is success. A lot of people who talk about following your dreams and pursuing your goals, the reason they tell you that is because they're really optimistic about how much you'll succeed. I don't think that's true. I think if you follow your dreams and go after what you want, you will probably get your butt kicked in ways that you can't even imagine, that it's probably gonna be harder than you think, but that's okay. I think you should follow your dreams anyway. I think you should go after your goals anyway, because the pearl of great price isn't success. The pearl of great price is to become the best possible version of yourself. 
And when you encounter failure, when you encounter obstacles, that encounter transforms you. You know, I often say that there is a version of you that is far more courageous than the people sitting in front of me. There's a version of you that's far more creative, far more wise, far more intelligent than the people that are sitting in front of me. But you don't get to be that version of yourself simply by hypothesizing about failure. The only way you get to be the superior version of you is by going after the things you want. Because when you go after the things you want, that process of pursuing your goals actually transforms you. So when you face failure, don't look at that as, oh no, this is the end because I didn't get what I wanted. Look at that, look at this as, okay, this is something that's transforming me, making me into the person that I need to be. And that's the ultimate goal, to be the best version of yourself. Because when you are that, no matter what circumstances and conditions you are in, you will have that creativity and self-confidence and wisdom that lets you know how to handle it. My first startup, um, my, my uh, colleagues and I, we raised a quarter of a million dollars. I had a lot of family and friends, trust me, I believed in the idea, and we lost. We lost. We thought we had an amazing idea, we pushed it forward, and it just didn't work. And I was crushed. I wanted to give up, I wanted to cry, I never wanted to be involved in entrepreneurship again, but as a result of going through that failure, I began to see things, I began to recognize things within myself that I can now use in other areas of life. So always use that obstacle as the foundation for the next level. Everybody has them. Um, let it make you, don't let it break you. I heard somebody over here has them. So, so did that do it? Yeah. <laughs> Two of my song, all right. We got a few more minutes. One or two more. Now, see, I know somebody gonna come up to me and be like, hey, uh, TK, right quick. Um, kind of similar, but kind of different question I want to throw at you. You know, there are a lot of entrepreneurial minds inside the room, and I think one of the things that, one of the major hurdles that, to use your word, um, one of the major hurdles that we suffer from is in that so much that we're not inspired to go and, you know, create change or to create a product. It's that I need a tool set. I need a skill set. You know, you mentioned for your first startup, you know, one of the things you did was you raised a quarter of a million dollars. Well, what told you, okay, I need to raise a quarter of a million dollars in order to do that? You know, you have this beautiful plan. Okay. Need? I, I, I never raised any money before. I had never done any fundraising before. I'm going to finish. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Finish. And, you know, um, and that's, you know, at your stage, you know, that's, that's kind of a, that's an apparent, you know, truth, you know, but as someone who's starting out, you know, I have this awesome, I have this awesome plan, I have this awesome idea, what do I do with it? You know, step one, you know, should I write it down? You know, and that's an obvious thing that people tend to not do, you know, should I go to talk to friends or should I just, you know, keep it to myself, focus, make a plan, make some goals for myself. So I think, you know, for a lot of us, I'm, you know, culturally growing up, it, our experience has been a lot of emotive, emotional, you know, encouraging talks without, where's that me? Where's my, where's my day one step on plan? So if you could speak to some of those, you know, skill sets or tools that people need, I think that would be helpful. All right, so uh, first thing I want to say is, um, one, one of the most important things to understand is that, and, and I think this is one of the great privileges of getting older, um, because as you get older, you realize that there is no age at which human beings finally know what they're talking about. 
you realize that we're all making it up and improving our way through life all the time. You know, you talk to a parent, you know, how do they become ready? I mean, I guess you could read a book on it. I guess you could interview other parents and they'll tell you things, but your experience is going to be totally different and you learn by getting out there in the trenches. And I think I think that the basis of this question reveals you know, an element of, of how we're, we're conditioned to think in term, you know, by school, which is we, we're conditioned to think about success and failure in terms of right and wrong answers. You know, um, we don't get good grades in school for, um, for trying hard, right? Or for exercising creativity in the way that we try to answer a question. It's pretty clear. Um, if you got this amount wrong, your grade gets docked. And so very early on, we internalize this, this uh, mindset that says making mistakes, making errors, failing, that's a bad thing. And so we find ourselves being trapped with questions like this, like, do I write it down? Do I tell a friend? And none of those things that you named were wrong, but the problem was created by a fear that one of them might be wrong, right? There's a right thing to do, and there's a possible wrong thing to do, and the reality of entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurship is a form of experimentation. That to be an entrepreneur is to test hypotheses. I mean, that's literally what we're doing. We're testing hypotheses because it doesn't matter how good of an idea you think you have or how awesome your business plan is or you've taken the right steps. Ultimately, in entrepreneurship, if they ain't buying, you don't get to do business, right? So you actually don't know what works until you put things out there and get real feedback from real people. So I would say all of those steps are useful, but the best first step to take is the one that you'll actually take. Because any one of those steps, even if it's the wrong step, is going to result in you getting feedback from external reality. It's gonna result in you taking these ideas and getting them outside of the safety of your own head, right, where they're perfect and cuddly, and you put them out there and people say, ha ha, that's dumb, ha that's stupid, oh I like that, I like this part but I don't like that. And that feedback makes you smarter and it lets you know how you want to tweak things and refine things. So don't ever get stuck in the trap of not taking that first step because you don't know what steps two through 12 look. The knowledge of what to do for step two will be the result of taking step one. The knowledge of what to do to take step three will be the result of taking step two. And it doesn't matter if you do the wrong things as long as you assess at the beginning, your tolerance for risk, you know, like what you're comfortable risking and so forth. But even if you do the wrong thing, the important thing is that you process that experience and say, okay, even in this failure, what's something that I learned from that failure? Why did I fail? All failures are not equal. If you treat failure as this blanket thing of just, I didn't get what I want, you don't get to become smarter in the process. But when you recognize that all failure is the result of a specific reason and you investigate, you get to be smarter, you get to be better, and the next time you act, you reduce that probability of failure in the future. And by the way, this is what all the entrepreneurs are doing. They're all making it up, they're all improvising, and these you know, TED Talks sound really awesome. Everybody sounds like they know what they're talking about, but you know, they're all making it up. How much do you charge for this? People make it up. I talk to consultants all the time, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, and I say, how did you get that price? How did you know that's how much you charge? They say, I just made it up. You know, And then I eventually found out I was charging too much or charging too little based on actual feedback. But you gotta start somewhere and don't put failure on a pedestal. Knock it off that pedestal and take the experimental mindset, not the right versus wrong mindset. Right, thank you.
sorry. I, before all the, the students have to are emptying the room, we'll have to. Uh, TK, don't leave me. I'll, I'll be around. When I'll you be around. Started with all the these metaphors. I uh, I thought, well, there goes my vote of thanks. I'm not allowed to use a metaphor, <laughs> but I will. Uh, you've left us with a smorgasbord of food for thought. How's that? Is that, is that I, I like it. I like it. So I'm sorry I can't come up with much more than that. But what, thank you guys very much for coming. You guys make these evenings for us, other than our speakers, of course. But none of this is possible without our, our sponsors, and some of whom are the Templeton Foundations, our major sponsor, Compass Point, AID, Automotive Industrial Distributors, Bahamas Wholesale Agencies, Go Ahead Biscuits, Arizona Drinks, Windermere Corporate Management, and Sabaro, among others that wish to not be named. Um, but thanks again. Dean Moxie opens up the halls. Thanks to Professor Forbes uh, and you, most importantly. And last but not least is Miss Moxie, who does a great job helping us get this thing organized and uh, all functioning. And my last job is to give TK a, a book, if he's here still, a little gift from us to say thank you, The Bahamas, Portrait of an Archipelago that hopefully will sit on your, uh, your, your coffee table in your living room. Thank you so much. One thing that always amazes me when we ask these kind people to come and speak is they get these emails from some obscure Nassau Institute that they've never heard of, and somehow they show up. So the market is trust, and that's an important component in our market activity. Thank you again, ladies and gentlemen. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use my special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.